Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're on Team Human, coming to you alive from Gray Area Foundation's historic Grand Theater, a bastion of humanistic resistance in the otherwise gentrified monument to venture capitalism once known as San Francisco. Couldn't help it. It's hard to describe the awe and admiration I feel for our next guest. They tell you not to meet your heroes, but along with Robert Anton Wilson, He's one of the few life heroes I've met who became even more a hero to me as I got to know him as a friend, colleague, and co-conspirator. Playing for Team Human since before there was a team at all, author, teacher, community organizer, cyberculture pioneer, and artist, Howard Rheingold. got a mic it's gonna you've done this before that's the hardest act to follow I've ever dealt with <laughs> thank you so I don't know how to say this I did a little digging and I found out how and when you came to San Francisco and I have the actual video evidence of your arrival if you could play this I'm outing. This is like Nick Denton times 10. Attention, Earthlings, do not panic. The Martian Bureau of Investigation is preempting normal Earthling programming for the next 30 minutes. Maintain consciousness and stay tuned. Earth, the green planet, planet of mystery, has always fascinated Martians. We have marveled at these Earthlings from afar, astounded at their audacity, their cruelty, their humor. Finally, we had to send someone down there for a closer look. 
the Martian Bureau of Investigation selected Howard K. Martian, Jr., intrepid operative, spy and scholar, extraterrestrial anthropologist extraordinaire. Wherever Martian science leads me, there I will go. Here we are in the central computer room. I believe we have one of the central computer czars here. Greetings. Paul. I understand that you have a computer that actually writes science fiction. Well, it actually was programmed by a human, of course, and uh, it takes a set of standard phrases that the programmer thought were uh, appropriate to a science fiction story and throws them together in a fairly random way, generating um, sometimes interesting and sometimes rotten science fiction stories. Oh, great. So the science fiction story doesn't exist until it's thrown together before right. our very eyes. Yes. Well, let's push some buttons and read one out. All right. We move over to the computing device. Welcome to the science fiction horror movie pocket computer story number one. Earth is attacked by tiny Betelgeusean superpersons which who look upon us as a source of nourishment and eat us. The end. Short story. So, so I love the Martian anthropologist as a conceit from which to analyze digital technology. And this was the very beginning, very beginning. So your, your first way, your, your initial intuition on how to approach this thing that was about to happen was to say, what would the Martians think? And that was the output device in 1977, was a, was a, was a teletype. You know, I, um, I just got involved with what, what has ended up happening because I heard that you could write on a computer screen and didn't have to retype your pages over and, and over again. And when I got my hands on one, I, I realized that this was not just a better typewriter, that it was a mind amplifier and that they were going to become more powerful. So the question was, how is that going to change Earthling civilization? So I, mean, I was just fortunate to be here at that time interested in, in technology. So I think participant observer would be a more, more accurate term. I was both interested in the tools and, you know, Annalie was talking about the, the pace of change seeming slow. For, for me, it's been fantastically fast. I, I started out with a, a horse and buggy and now I have my own 747 or, or I have my own spaceship going from the, the typewriter to Google and the internet and everything that, that we can do if we know how to do it with these, with these tools. So I've always been enthusiastic about it, but also thinking critically about what's, what's going to happen for better and for, for worse. I mean, in the early books, and these were sort of pre-cyber culture books, the kind of stuff that you did with Willis Harmon, like um, Higher Creativity. I mean, there, there's a book like Higher Creativity and, and the, those early books about, what was it, Excursions of the Mind, and they, they, they felt like they were sort of a stealth world picture masquerading 
as self-improvement books. In other words, you sort of package it as this is how you can do better, but really what you were doing was arguing that, as I saw, it's all connected. I mean, these were the first sort of fractal understandings of the word. It's all connected. Security, hunger, environment, that there's sort of one fundamental thing going on, and that, that on a certain level, personal mind change can make all the problems solvable. I don't know about making them all solvable, but it, it, it seemed apparent even then in the early 1980s. In fact, it was, it was apparent to me earlier when I was 16 or 17 that, that during my lifetime, we're going to see the human race come to some kind of conclusion. Um, <laughs> and, well, um, and, Will, and Willis and I had the, the, the same experience. And this is Willis Harmon who ran the S Stanford Research Institute and got the acid from Captain Al Hubbard and distributed it to all the physicists and scientists there. And it was a very interesting guy. Well, he was a very, very straight guy. He was a young electrical engineering professor at Stanford. And this fellow from his hometown happened to be the person who was turning everyone on to LSD in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. And he took this drug and ascended to the ceiling and looked at his body down below and was convinced more than anybody I've ever met that he was not his body. And, and, right. and right. that, the, he, I think futurists at that time called it the, the global problematique. That all, and you know, it's amazing that they solved these converging problems which were, I think, dwarfed by the converging problems that we see now um, as being something that, that couldn't really be solved instrumentally, that mm. it had to have to do with people changing their minds. And Willis was interested in the fact that there had been a global mind change, the, the change from religion to science, to a secular way of thinking. And you know, now that we're, we're having second thoughts about the kind of world that, that we've built, there's a lot of echoes of what happened in the 19th century when people started moving from villages to, to cities and the, from community to society. And a lot of the, the fears and the arguments that, uh, that sociologist Tunney's had when he wrote about Gemeinschaft and Gesellschaft are really echoed by the kinds of fears that we have today. I don't think there's any way of going back to only two or three billion people on the planet. So we sort of have to deal with the problem that we have. And Willis's conviction, and you know, I was in my early 30s, and he was he was my mentor in a sense, was that that we were witnessing the beginnings of a global mind change, and that that mind change would enable individuals to understand our our role in averting the disaster that was, was obviously coming. And you weren't, a, you weren't a, a true believer in that sense. Well, uh, I was a true believer in, in that everything that, that I had been taught was, was probably wrong. And, um, and, I, and I think that that was um, the one, one thing that we had in common from our LSD experience was the experience that there are many other ways to see the world than the one we're taught. And Annalie talked about um, 
Berkeley and, and Stanford, two, two places that I've taught, um, continuing the process of schooling, which is really training people to comply with the, the social order. And that when she said that, I realized, I remembered that the first thing that I understood when I faced a class of students was some deprogramming is going to have to be involved here if, if we're going to really get back to, to learning. So th that's a, a, a whole other question there. And again, it's the, the instrumental versus the sacred. The, right. what, what can we do that, that will enable us to have more energy or more time or, or more food versus what are we doing that's meaningful to us? Right, because we get into, I mean, the, the problem with technology sometimes is, is it enables a particular thing. It allows us to instrumentalize something, and then we start just doing a lot of that thing, but we may lose track of sort of the, the larger value system that we were trying to even assist by even doing that. It's, you know, back to Horkheimer and the Eclipse of Reason, which I recently reread. You know, and he distinguishes between capital R reason and small r reason, where capital R reason is like that big value, and little reason is the sort of utilitarian you know, technical ability that you gain through development. You know, Joseph Weizenbaum wrote a book a uh, long time ago, uh, I think in the late 60s, called Computer Power and H Human Reason. He was part of the original AI lab at, at MIT, and he created a little, the first bot, really, called Eliza, that would do a, a, a kind of um, uh, Rogerian-directed analysis trick with you, you would ask it, you would talk to it, and it would ask you leading questions. And he became disturbed at how people really took this seriously, went pretty far with, with Eliza. And he wrote this book in, in which he noted that, that computers enable us to write very large a part of human capability, which is reason. But reason is not the only thing that makes us human. Back, back to the discussion you had with Anna Lee, um, we're all kind of floating on the enlightenment assumption that reason is better than blind belief and that knowing more is better than not knowing. And I believe that and I admit that that's my prejudice, but we, we see it manifesting itself in, in a way that's become autonomous from our desires and needs as, as humans. Right, I mean, it feels like it goes back to that Cain and Abel, like we were talking before, you know, where the, the, the technologist who is uh, uh, doing the, well, more Faustus even, this kind of quest for knowledge versus the one who has some faith in the, the, the innate sanctity of existence. Well, and our, our existence with other creatures in, in, on, on the planet, and you know, uh, humans started reshaping the planet actually before Homo sapiens, a couple of hundred thousand years ago, using fire. And uh, roughly 10,000 years of agricultural civilization. So people who, if you dress them up, you would not be able to tell the, the difference between us and them lived in a very different way for 20 or 30 times longer than we've lived in these aggregations of cities and, and with social hierarchies and with uh, technology and, and agriculture. And we've, the narrative has been that, there's, that there was progress 
from savagery to civilization. Mm -hmm. And you hear those words and they, they're freighted with meaning and somehow the hunters and gatherers were living in some kind of way that was less desirable than what we get when we start applying reason to the, to the way we live in a, in a more mechanical way. Mechanical in the sense of treating humans as components in a, a larger machine. Right, rather than, I mean, parts of nature and, and gears in a machine are kind of two different ways, two different ways of looking at it. I kind of want to go back to the, the, the psychedelics for a minute, because what, what occurs to me is that, I mean, when I think back to the early days when I was first reading you and trying to find where you were and meeting you, even over the well, and it, digital technology wasn't the big deal yet, but psychedelics seemed to be the way we found each other back then. There was sort of the people who had had the LSD experience was like, oh, good, we found find the others, you know, as, as Leary would say. And then there was a sense of we were part of that conscious conspiracy to uh, enable humanity's, uh, uh, if not ascent, at least uh, uh, improvement. Well, you know, there was something right and there was something wrong about those early revelations. Well, what was right was um, the, the way that I've been acculturated and that everyone I know has been acculturated is, is not the only way to be. And that, in fact, we've been trained to, to be this way. There was the idea that if everyone could see that, that life would be better. Right. But in fact, it turns out that that leaves out a lot of other problems. Right. And now, I mean, you know, Tim Leary said that, that digital technology was psychedelic that the internet was like LSD, and now everyone's gonna take it. And if he was right, in a sense, then humanity is now living on a psychedelic substrate, only because we're so utterly unprepared for psychedelics and we have such an awful set and setting, humanity's having this bad trip. Well, you know, it, it is, I mean, I, I called it a mind amplifier. What's really interesting about this technology is not that it enables us to harness more energy, but that it en enables us to extend our, our power to perceive and to, and, and to think and to, to communicate. And along the way, um, it in intersected with capitalism. And uh, I remember sitting on my lawn in 1991, 1992, thinking, well, what's the most important thing that this social communication through computers would, would lead to? What, what, what are the more important critical uncertainties? And, and I concluded, well, are we going to be more free as individuals? Is democracy going to be stronger? And that led me to the, the, the notion of the public sphere, again, the Frankfurt School, the idea that it's not just about electing your leaders that makes a democracy, it's about having a population who, have, who are free enough and educated enough to, have, to argue about issues and to form public opinion and to shape policy. And Habermas's fear was that the manipulation of public opinion through public relations and the, and the um, corruption of journalism would enable people with power and money to manipulate the public sphere. 
But what none of us really saw was that the technological capability of surveillance on, and data valence of everybody and the manipulation of attention would become a, a, a machine for making money, but a, a very attractive one to those of us who are, are mm -hmm. caught up in it. And so I think it's very, very recent that people have started recognizing the fact that we're sort of trapped. Right, I mean, I, I, you know, John Barlow passed away last week, uh, who is a, a friend and a raconteur and a cowboy, and I mean, uh, uh, he was almost, a, John Barlow is the kind of person that when he's in your life, he like becomes, instantly becomes a character in your dreams, you know, because he sort of represents this, you know, daddy cowboy macho extreme, but, Barlow got commissioned by Wired to write the Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace. And it was written at a time when a bunch of kids like Fiber Optic were been arrested in Operation Sun Devil. Little hackers were just getting, they were busting down their doors because they were changing the temperature in shopping malls or something fun. Uh, uh, the, the Computer Decency Act was being pushed by, you know, an Al Gore and Tipper were, were mad about music and uh, government really seemed like the enemy and then Barlow comes out with, um, I don't have it written down, but you know, governments of the world, you know, beware, we don't need you here, go away, this is cyberspace, leave us alone. And we're all, yay, go away, bad government, cops. And what we didn't realize, and maybe he did, and didn't quite tell us, that if you make the internet a government and regulation-free zone, what you've done is opened it up to Capitalism and corporatism. It's like, you know, if you take antibiotics and kill all the bacteria in your body, then the fungus grows. You know, so it's sort of that. You get rid of government and then corporatism grew. And then we got this commercial net that was really hard to, it's been really hard to recontextualize ever since. I mean, do you think that we, we had too much faith in some, uh, that we'd be able to just do this without uh, uh, top-down regulation? Well, the question of regulation is how many troops are you going to send to Colombia? How many troops are you going to send to Iceland? Who's going to regulate it? And that, that's, that's always been a, a, a huge issue. And now, of course, we're seeing that there's a, there's a Chinese internet and there's a, a, a Persian internet and there's a, a, an American internet and it's become balkanized in that sense. But, uh, you know, I think we, we tend to talk about these things in kind of Manichaean terms and it's, I think, a lot more complicated than that. Life is much, much better for a lot of people because of this machine we're trapped in. And it's also a big problem. And if you want to start pulling on that thread, it goes a long way back. And if you start talking about humans and our relation to technology, you've got to realize that we're, we've got these hands that grasp things. It's, technology's been a part of what we do for a lot longer than our second thoughts about what, it, what we're doing to us. But, I mean, Tim Leary used to say that uh, Marxists were the least psychedelic people in the world. He thought Marxism and psychedelia were incompatible, which is interesting. I mean, and uh, there was certainly a, a libertarian thread in early digital culture. I mean, do you think that, that psychedelia has a 
a, a kind of an optimism to it that's just uh, really more compatible with a libertarian uh, capitalist sort of uh, neo, certainly neoliberal mindset. You know, the sort of globalist totalitarian uh, mindset, all is one, one market, open, you know, open markets, tattoo it on your forehead was the long boom from the wire, tattoo it on your forehead, open markets good, closed markets bad, that, 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 that psychedelia kind of promotes that uh, more than it, than it augurs a, a guardian Marxist hold on pause mentality? Well, you're talking about a, a world of 20, 30 years ago and mm. you know times change and and people change i think having your eyes open to the fact that you are taught how to see the world and that we are interconnected in in ways that we're we're not taught is important but that doesn't mean that you're going to be able to make things better just just by knowing that although again back to this kind of uh in, Enlightenment belief system. I've thought about this for a long time because when I first started writing about where would digital media take us, I wrote Tools for Thought in 1985. Mm. Uh, we had these personal computers and they were gonna get a lot more powerful. What, what, what is that going to mean? I was not thinking of myself as a scholar or a, an academic, but as a freelance writer, you know, trying to, trying to tell a, a a true story is the, the best I could, but immediately I got a lot of critiques from uh, academics um, about their, their fears about where this would go. So I really started thinking critically about it early, and so where are computers gonna go? And then in the early 90s I wrote about where social communication through computers and networks going to go, and then in the early 2000s, what about these devices where carrying with us, and finally, my, my conclusion was, it really depends on what people know. So there's a missing element be, between the economics and the, and the mechanics, which is the, the know-how. And, and I'd have to say that, that my most optimistic scenario now is that we're really in a world divided between the um, not the haves and the have not so much as the know how to use this stuff and the don't know how to use this stuff. And mm. unfortunately, there's a proportion of people who don't know how to use it or who, who use it in a malevolent way that has, has poisoned the commons. Will we ever get to a, a point where it will become better or, or are we simply going to have people who know how to find their way through the through the the dangerous stuff to do what, what they need to do for themselves. I mean, it's funny. I think we kind of go back and forth a little bit on our optimism, or optimism and pessimism. I mean, when I first met you in like 1990, you know, I was a, a very happy rave kid, um, rave intellectual, um, and so excited about they're, they're having these parties, it's like the acid test, only on better drugs and better music and cool lights. Well, worse music, but cool lights. Um, and we're having these new, the Mac was out, the Mac Classic, or before it was called a classic even. And I came to you and I'm like, oh my God, this is it. This is the transformation we've been talking about. This is it. We're here. We're going to live through it. Yay, yay, yay. And you were like, well, Doug, yeah, but you know, 
I've been through things like this before, and you know, there's various different elements and things, and then all sorts of shit hit the fan, and I wrote like coercion and programmer be programmed, and then we met out somewhere, and I'm like, oh, I'm you know, really upset about what's happening to the net, and that's when you were like, well, yeah, but look, instruction in classes has gotten so much better that, that a kid with an interactive joystick is in a much better position than just a kid watching TV. And you were kind of on a, a, a happy sort of place. And I was going into the, you know, we've got to fight this and fight. And you're like, it's all cool. And you were almost sad for me that I had gotten so dark about all this stuff. Um, maybe I'm just a pendulum swinger, and you've been kind of just in a balanced perspective all along, but now, well, NetSmart is an optimistic book. NetSmart, you know, your last one is... Well, I mean, uh, it's a hopeful book. Hopeful. But you're showing, look, here's how to be smart, and if we're smart, this stuff's not a threat. We can use it in a class like this, use it in your life like this, use it in industry like this, and you see, there's appropriate ways to use all of these things. Well, I've been accused of being an optimist for a long time, and um, I'm, I'm really not. I mean, how can you really know anything about history or know what's going on right now and, and be terribly optimistic? But I, when I was pretty young, um, I decided that uh, the only nihilist is a suicidal nihilist, and um, I didn't want to do that. So. I decided to choose to be hopeful. I think that, that we're, in, in general, descended from creatures who said, there must be some way out of this terrible situation. And so, thinking that does not guarantee that you're going to survive. But not thinking that is, is pretty much um, a guarantee that, that you won't. So, I don't really know what the, the big answer is. But I think a little answer is spread cluefulness. Um, it may be too late in, in the sense, so I wrote about what I thought were the, the fundamental social media literacies. Starting with attention, and this was 2012, it's pretty clear by now that attention is the handle that we've been grabbed by. And, you know, it's not coercive. We like to, to put our attention into the, these apps that, are, that are, are, are sucking our attention and selling it um, to advertisers. And, and you know, this wasn't created as a conspiracy. It just evolved. I remember when the banner ad was created at Wired. It was a big step forward. We were going to get people to actually pay for creating culture. And You've probably experienced this. When I was editor of the Whole Earth Review for four years, it was a magazine that was printed on paper. Magazines that are printed on paper do not survive because people support culture by, by subscribing. They have to sell ads. And there was an, an ideology at Whole Earth that, that predated me that we're not going to accept advertising, even for the kind of things that our readers want. And so we went out of business. Um, we have what we have for better, a lot better, and worse, a lot worse, um, because it evolved that way.
I mean, you've experienced this, the, the threat of extinction on a personal level, too. You know, you're, you're and I'll kiss you because you're alive. You're, yeah, thank you. you're, you're a cancer survivor, you know, and that's got to be a scary thing. You went, you know, you went through the crucible, you know, of, of, of chemo and everything and, and documented it live for us so that we didn't all have to bother you with emails to find out how you were. You had a video of him after, you know, chemo lying in the back of your house looking up at a tree that Brenda Laurel bought you in the, in the, 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 what you would think is the most intense pain and discomfort of your life, grateful to be alive with the sun beaming on you, experiencing bliss. So you came out on the other side, uh, a survivor, kind of then done with books, and now you're an artist. Well, you know, I have to say, I was, I was lucky. Um, a, lot of, a lot of people that I knew through that milieu, the, the, the world of cancer, were not so lucky. But it really, there's, if you do survive it, it, there's a huge gift, which is people ask me how I am, and I think, well, I don't have cancer. What's the problem? <laughs> and, and I truly believe, this is not a joke, that the secret to happiness is having appropriate expectations. And, um, there's a, actually, there's a Buddhist doctrine called dukkha, which, which is about having inappropriate expectations. And that, that in that doctrine, most of what we suffer in life has to do with wanting more than what we have at the moment. And so, you know, I can breathe, I can stand, I can shit, I can see. I'm happy with that. It ain't gonna last forever. I'm, I'm completely aware of it. I've had eight years of extra innings. It, it helps. And you're, can, you're an artist without running ads on your art, right? You started, as Team Human did, you started a Patreon. To yeah, support yeah, your work. I, so I everyone Patreon. first, everyone listening should support your Patreon. Where do they go? Patreon.com slash Howard Rheingold, one word. Howard Rheingold. <laughs> well, you know, I I I don't I can't encompass a big solution to these problems we've been talking about all, all night. But I think that embracing small ones is a is a good idea. When you know we got into this from that small step of the of the banner ad. Maybe we can get out of it. So what I love about Patreon are, are two things. One is it's a different business model. It's not about your attention, surveillance, and advertising. It's about people paying creators and creators paying each other. And a lot of that, you know, you remember Ted Nelson's mm -hmm. original dream for what the net was going to be would be that we would pay each other micropayments for, for what we were doing. And, and you know, if you read what Alan Kay and Ted Nelson have to say these days about the way the web went, they believe that, that a lot of the, the problems that we have are essentially problems that, that stem from Tim Berners-Lee, not really understanding the, the, the visions that they Not doing two-way linking, really, yeah. I don't think that that's going to overwhelm advertising as an economic <laughs> engine, but you know it's a little green space there. And the other thing I like about it is the difference between an audience and a public. You know, certainly you experience this. You know, when you, you write a book, it's, it's the, the, 
the message in the bottle, and maybe you meet somebody eventually who read the book, but you're not so connected with it. And that was one of the things we both loved about the well, was that you could write and you could get immediate re response for it. And, and audience are kind of faceless out there, and, and you broadcast to them, and they pay you. But a public can talk back to you. They can link to you. They can dispute with you. Um, they can give you ideas. Mm. And having a, a public in mind who like what you're doing well enough to pay you a dollar or two a month is, um, gives you a very different mindset when you're creating than if you are creating a, a book for a publisher in the, in the publishing world. And also, I, I did the book game mm. for most of my life. And, and I'm not interested in doing the art game. So this is a way that I can make my art and I can show my art to, to people. I can, you know, since this all started, I, I've spent a lot of time every day sharing knowledge with people, just pumping it out there. That's, that's why you become a writer. That's mm -hmm. what writers do. Why You don't have to be paid for everything you do. And of course, it, it turned out very quickly that for everything that I put out, I get 10 times back. And that is, I think, one of the, the things that, that's, that's really a, a great legacy of the internet culture is that if you, if you do pay attention to people and re respect people and help people, they will help you back. That there is a kind of social capital that many, many people are, are able to, to use online and, I, and I, I just I like the idea of there being a, a little green space in this horribly mechanized commercial world in which people are appreciating each other's contributions I mean as a as a, a writer and an artist you're someone uh, whose eyes and and mind we like to experience the world through because you have an ability to to engage with awe, which is, which is something that very few of us, you know, we're, we could all do it, but we don't do it a lot. We don't, it's as if, it's as if being in awe makes us uh, vulnerable somehow or, or too naive. And in our society, it feels like uh, so many potential experiences for awe have been kind of micro-dosed. You know, it's like LSD became Prozac, you know, or or the net and the, the the collective mind became the cookie cutter profiles of Facebook, you know. So the places that I used to look for that awe have uh, uh, become very limited, very predictable. I mean, where where what's your source of awe? Where do you turn for that these well, days? Well, you know, we we're taught not to appreciate awe, and we're taught to comply with a kind of gray world. And very early in my schooling, like the second grade, I could not physically sit in that little cramped desk all day, and I particularly didn't want to listen to things I, didn't, I already knew. So we I We call was, that ADD, we have drugs I, for that now. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You know, it's interesting, you know, you, you, uh, there are people who, who do have problems, but pathologizing an attention that's not narrowly focused is... is it's a great thing to do in an attention economy when you've but, got, yeah. 
Well, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. It's a long story. Yeah. Industrial society, schooling. We're, we're, we're grooved into these channels. There's a, a great graphic novel, I'm sure you know about, called Unflattening, mm -hmm. about how all that happens to us. And I was expelled from the classroom, and they sent me to the art room. And my mom was the art teacher. And she, she believed that we're all artists, that we all gain pleasure from expressing ourselves creatively, but that we're shut down very early. And someone looks at us uh, over our shoulder and says, that, that doesn't look like a horse. You can't be an artist. So um, my, my mom, my teacher, kind of protected my ability to color outside the lines. And then, you know, to circle back to psychedelics, just through circumstance, my first psychedelic trip was when JFK was assassinated that, that, that day. And so I had a really dark vision of the, of the future of America, and which I can't, I can't say that things have happened any differently from what I saw when I was 16. And, and that's a kind of an apocalyptic way to think when you're 16, 17 years old. So that really forced me to decide that I was going to try to find out what was going on during this last act of the of the the, the human story, so I I fought to, to not have to be interested in just one thing. And when I started teaching students, it was it was really clear the students I taught were very very good at figuring out what was going to be on the test. And you know we are humans because we love to learn and because we learn socially and. And no matter how much we are propagandized, we still have that love of learning in there somewhere. But boy, it's kind of hard to, to dig it out by the time you've got to Berkeley or, or Stanford. So I, I, I do think one of the things that we have now is that there used to be a monopoly on, on, on learning that the schools had. And if you were a dedicated autodidact, you could learn some things without going to school. But nowadays, if you were to ask a 14-year-old, how, how, how would you configure a web server or learn how to play the ukulele, I would bet that they would say, I'll go search on YouTube. You know, you've got YouTube, you've got Wikipedia, you've got Google. There are resources available to people who want to learn that never were available before. What's lacking is the knowledge of how to do it because schooling entrains us with learned helplessness. And we need to receive our learning rather than to engage in it. So I'm very excited about the possibilities of learning outside of the very slow-changing educational institutions. But somehow retaining the, the joy of the human mimesis, though, you know, because so much of learning is being with another human who's doing that thing. You know, it's not to go to ukulele university, but to be with the other, with the, this is what a ukulele player does. Well, I started calling my students co-learners, mm. and that had a remarkable effect. Um, if you give them permission to, to cooperate rather than compete and seed it with a few examples that are enjoyable, the, of course they take to that. It's, it's, it's much more 
interesting and much more fun to learn together. And, and that's, of, of course, one of the things that social media enables is that you can learn together with people that you may not have ever met or known before, but share a particular interest with you. Well, thank you, Howard Rheingold, for uh, inviting me to be a co-learner with you. It's been the ride of a lifetime, and uh, can't yeah, thank well, you enough. still going on. <laughs> <laughs> and now we'll... Uh, Invite Annalie up. So, hey. Hey. Welcome. You know, Howard, you used to do this thing. Well, you remember virtual communities and all that? There was this sense that just uh, when you started brainstorms after the well, it was just your living room, you know? And because it was your living room, there was a slight barrier to entry. But once you were there, it was like, this is my living room. And then conversations could blossom that couldn't happen out in the generic whatever. Uh, and here, I feel like, you know, especially because you've both shared in front of each other and all that, and here we are, that there's uh, the ability for a higher level conversation than we normally get to have when we're just conversing. I don't know. So this is an experiment in, rather than me, like, interviewing team humans, of just, like, having a good old dorm room, bong water stain, <laughs> carpet conversation about, you know, wherever we're going. I guess the first thing I'd want to ask is, did either of you have questions as you were listening to each other that you kind of wanted to ask? I mean, it felt like the one main difference was the sort of the, the, the use of the mechanical language, but that gets so semantic and we're all, we all mean the same thing. I didn't know if I would even want to go there. But, I actually, okay, yeah. so I really wanted to get back to the question that maybe you guys have already put to rest, but you were asking whether there was something about um, the LSD experience that kind of led to this, like, libertarian capitalist <laughs> playground that the internet eventually kind of became. Um, and I, I thought that was really interesting. I was sitting there, and probably people heard me going, mmm, um, when you said that. Because <laughs> I, I wondered if there was something about that. Not that, that, I mean, of course, when people take LSD, they have all kinds of experiences. And, um, and uh, you know, certainly, although yours was particularly memorable, <laughs> holy crap. <laughs> um, but I wondered if there was something about the ethos around that, like that idea of the, the idea behind why people were taking LSD, particularly in the 60s, that you were talking about, that you would learn to, from that experience, that you were kind of constructed, that you'd been told certain things, and that the reason why you believed all kinds of stuff was because, not because it was natural, but because you'd been told so. And that that would be the key to liberation, is if everyone realized, oh my God, reality is a social construct, we would just fix it, right? Um, and I wonder if the, I just, I'm really curious, do you see any line between that belief that discovering that we're constructed would liberate us and, and sort of the way that libertarianism works? I, I don't have an answer, but I wonder, do you think there is a line, like there is a kind of a, an inheritance there or? Well, well you know, as, as usual, it's more complicated. Good. Than that. The, the. The technologies we're talking about, the personal computers and the, and the, the, the internet, they came from an a unexpected collision of 
war. Right. DARPA. Some individuals who, many of whom had taken LSD, but in general thought, we don't have to do things the way IBM and AT&T want us to do them. And then eventually capitalism. And that um, none of those players would have chosen the other ones, but there were just some happy circumstances in that the, the war machine picked this interesting guy by the name of J.C.R. Licklider, who found other interesting people like Doug Engelbart. And, and Engelbart was really a pure idealist, again, um, affected by his LSD experiences, but his, his motivation was, can we make some tools that will help humans work together to solve the problems that we've created mm -hmm. for ourselves? He deliberately turned down being an entrepreneur. He didn't want to be a computer science and scientist in academia. But when it turned out that the military-industrial complex needed better ways to communicate with computers, that enabled him to do, do that. I, I think he probably wouldn't have chosen that, and they wouldn't have, mm -hmm. have, have chosen him. Um, and then what emerged became an amplifier of human capabilities. And he was an engineer. Um, and a lot of the things that happened would not surprise people who were more involved in looking at how humans do things rather than how machines do things. So a lot of the, the, the elements that we decry really come from the amplification of aspects of human nature. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think, we think, how can we do such savage things? I, I look at it from the other way. How can, how can, um, such successful, hyper-successful predators aspire to what we aspire to. <laughs> when you, when you talk about aspiration, I mean, when I think of the, the, the West Coast at that time, the sort of the, the Esalen culture, which was kind of dominated by Maslow and the hierarchy of needs, you know, it put self-actualization at the top. You know, it was self-improvement and uh, but between, you know, it, Est and Tony Robbins and the cosmists, this idea that there's this self. With, I don't even believe in the self anymore. It's like the self absent, its, it, it, its connection to the others doesn't, exist, you know, that that we took a technology that was originally about sharing computer cycles, which is what the original networks were for, and turned it into the personal computer, which just dovetailed so perfectly with you, you're the one, you deserve a break today, corporate capitalism. You know, what's funny about thinking it that, of it that way is, you know, because of course, again, LSD does fit, it, fit in nicely to that, like, I'm the center of everything and like my well, personal Shirley McLean on the revelation beach, I am God, will, will I am serve, God. Yeah. save everything. But so when you think of it that way, and then you think about what Howard was saying about how basically the internet was born from a collision between the military and psychedelic culture. I realize that's reducing a much more complicated collision, um, but those were two of the parties in the collision. It kind of makes the military the good guys in a weird way. Like they were the ones that were like, well, let's figure out a good way to communicate. Like let's bring people together and, and make communication simple. And, and it's true, like if you, if you strip away like, you know, 
a lot of the other stuff that the military does, one of the things that's really important is making sure that you can communicate clearly and making sure that large bodies of people are aware of what's happening, having situational awareness. So it kind of, the, the collectivist tendencies on the internet may actually come from an unexpected place. You know, that, that origin story may really be that the military is kind of responsible for the, the collective parts and then LSD is responsible for like Snapchat? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like trying, no, cause Snapchat is also about sharing. So Snapchat is really from the military side. So, oh, I know, uh, filters. And LSD brought you Snapchat filters. Right. And, and <laughs> screensavers. you endlessly look at yourself like, whoa, now my face is like this. Right. And like, now my face is like, yeah, anyway, I, I'm sure none of you right. guys. No, none of you guys It is that. interesting, though. I mean, so you could say that LSD is when we turn the phone on ourselves. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah selfies. Right. The selfie is, yeah, thanks to LSD for the selfie. Um. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think we're, we're using LSD as a... a signifier for consciousness and that right. if you yes, were to remove the, the drug yeah. from from the story we our consciousnesses are expanded through our use of these technologies in ways that we never would have dreamed of before and you know you're talking about the the emergence of this um, different culture um, things were Things changed. Um, America was a very conformist society. It was one in which racism was part of our, our laws. It was um, a society in which people didn't question going off to Asia and killing a lot of people. Those things all changed during the same period. Where the causation starts and stops is hard, hard to tell. But we live in a, a world in which, and maybe that's not so good for Americans. We, we think in a much less monolithic, unified way. You know, it's the uh, idea of the imagined community. Everyone read the same newspapers and saw the same television channels and that the same idea of the society, let's see, everybody. White people saw that as a, as what America was. And that illusion was ripped away. And it was ripped away quite consciously by people who fought to rip that illusion away. And now we're, we're, we're still dealing with, as you said, when, when, you, when you take the facade away, there's the genocide and the, the slavery that enables us to, to have a society in which everyone can have personal computers, and we're, we're, we're living with these very painful contradictions that have not yet been worked out. But before this all exploded, it was, it was just unconscious. It was not acknowledged. Yeah, so in that sense, what we're really talking about, as you were saying, it's not LSD, it's really um, social movements of the 1960s, social movements that called into question the way things had been done, the way the government was doing things, um, partly the way capitalism was doing things, although it was much more focused on the government and the military at that time for obvious reasons. Um, and now I think, you know, we're looking at a new phase in social revolution that is coming out of the same technology. I mean, it's, you know, there's new apps, but we're still talking about connected computers, connected devices. Um, and, and that is 
I think much more about right now, as you've been talking about up here, it's about capitalism. It's about questioning how capitalism is structuring our experience as we interact with each other. And I think we're right in the middle of having that facade ripped off. And we're people are realizing, oh, all these people I thought were people on Facebook aren't real. You know, that was just, you know, and they, and they, in that illusion of these people I was talking to was enabled by a capitalist structure that was selling ads to a Russian organization mm -hmm. that was structured like a company that was, whose entire goal was to, um, you know, subvert democracy, which is so funny. We were talking about this before yeah. the show about how, and you were like, wow, they were so successful with their viral memes, like more successful than advertisers. And I was like, that's because they weren't selling anything. They were buying ads, but they weren't selling a product. They were just freaking people out, you know? Right, the medium was selling the message. Fear. Yeah, the medium <laughs> really was, God, I don't even know. Didn't. Yeah, the medium was the medium, like it was. <laughs> I want to I use our last five or ten minutes to see if uh, uh, anyone else on the team wants to, uh, to interact with, with our, our guests. Do you all have any thoughts or questions or things you want to, yeah, I mean, co-learners. I'll play Phil Donahue for those who are old <laughs> like me and know who that even is. Hi, have you guys seen the Purdue University Microbots video? And would you let those go inside of your body? Well, I already have an RFID embedded in my body, <laughs> so it's an RFID tag. Um, it's not exactly micro, uh, it's still macro. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think I would let those particular bots in my body. I'm not interested in beta testing um, any bots, but if we actually had medicine that could be delivered by little mini bots, yeah, I'm there. How about you? Well, I'm, a, I'm here because of, of uh, radiation machines and... and uh, Poisonous chemicals that that killed the cancer but didn't kill me. So I'm I'm a I'm a believer in uh, what uh, te technological medicine can buy. I think that the the problem is not one of the the what what a good thing it is. It's how how it's distributed. Yeah, how it's distributed is huge. And can I mean can you imagine a future where you know we all have bots that are in our in our bodies maintaining our health and then you have to get updates and you have to pay for the updates and if you don't pay for the updates you, you start getting colds and flus again and you feel malware achy. malware i just i i really am looking not looking forward to the day when we when people have brain implants and you start getting like silent updates on your brain implants and you wake up with like weird extraneous memories of eating big macs and how great that was <laughs> Right. Well, you didn't pay. It was in the youth. It's in the service agreement that you signed when you got it. Yeah, it, exactly. Yeah. By by <laughs> implanting this brain implant, you agree to all future updates to the contract. Okay, <laughs> sir. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> yeah, I wanted to find out what you thought about the idea of uh, this. May not be an issue for us now. In fact, it may not be an issue for another fifty years. But uh, about the issue you brought up. Uh, slavery uh, with some of the, the themes in your book, to me that leads automatically to the idea of robotic rights. And this is an issue that, you know, is kind of an intellectual exercise now, but it may be something that we'll have to actually deal with in the future. We've carefully adjusted all of our laws so that corporations have rights. And it kind of makes you wonder, well, then why can't robots have rights if corporations can have rights? What do you think about the idea of uh, robotic rights? Um, you uh, definitely, I think that um, it is a thought experiment for now. 
Um, but it is something that, because of our history of slavery, I think we have to be really worried about what kind of rights we're going to give to potential artificial beings. Um, one of the things that I was saying earlier was that my one of my big fears is that consciousness will emerge and we won't recognize it, and so we will enslave it without realizing that we're enslaving it. Um, so I think that um, that's a question. I think that if we had a consciousness that was easily recognized and was saying, hello, I don't want to be enslaved, um, I do think it's a really interesting legal question. Like you said, we, we let corporations have a kind of a set of rights, a kind of human identity almost. Um, so lawyers who are thinking about this, there's a great uh, lawyer, Ryan Kahlo, who does think about robots in the context of rights. Um, and uh, I talked to him about this for an article I, I wrote recently. And he was... Uh, he said, you know, well, it is true that they could gain rights through kind of incorporating and, and sort of being like corporations. Um, the other possibility, which is kind of depressing, is that um, robots will be given rights through whoever it is that makes them. And so they'll be kind of the property of whoever makes them. And so whatever rights they have will come through that, um, which is starting to sound like slavery again. So I think it's going to be, you know, the future Electronic Frontier Foundation is probably going to be asking these questions and figuring out how to manipulate the law to make that happen. And it's interesting, the, the question that that, that that made me think about is less what kind of rights are we going to give robots, but what kind of bodies are we willing to give to corporations? You know, that, that, that this is, oh, yeah. that now, oh, here, here I am, you know, I am Exxon. You know? But also, like, yeah. what kind of rights do we give to people who've been harmed by robots, too? I mean, I think that's a, a more immediate question. Right. Well, while robots are still just things, like, how are we going to work that out? Thank you. Thank you for a very insightful lecture. I have a somewhat of a different question. I want to ask about education, right? We talk about this dichotomy of the human and the AI. Well, how about having a university where it's the AI assist, right? Where all students are paired up with a semi-conscious AI. And we, it's, it's like the Gary Kasparov chess, right? The chess computer beat Gary Kasparov, so now we have championships that are AI and human teams. In other words, it's a, it's a computer-human uh, team. So if we can have that for chess matches, why can't we have that for education? Well, I think a personal learning assistant would be a, a great idea. But I, I've also been through the last 10 years of uh, projection of hopes about education onto the entrance of technology into education. And until we, we really deal with learner agency and enable them to learn rather than passively absorb what, what is fed to them, then the, the, the technology issue is, 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 is moot. And to me, what, what's important about the use of social media and education is that it, it enables this kind of discourse and collective action to learn among the, the students who previously had been isolated competitors in the classroom. And why are we all getting together in the same physical space anymore, you can see my lecture on YouTube. Being together as a group ought to take advantage of our ability to, to learn socially, but schooling is all about stripping that away.
Yeah, and I want before, is there a, a, a woman with a question? Because I don't want to go to all guys or someone who identifies as something other than a male. Okay. So uh, a lot of the problems we're facing with society these days have to do with um, blind faith. Uh, we tend to believe things very deeply, and we believe that God's on our side. And we, <clears throat> we tend to, um, sometimes, even though facts are available, we don't always avail ourselves of those facts. Is there a possibility that we could find a cure for blind faith, and is could AI in any way play a role in nudging us along to uh, develop our critical thinking skills? So, like, place our faith in AI? I think probably not. I actually don't think that humans have as much of a problem with blind faith as, um, as you might think. Um, I think humans are trusting, and I think that we do... Um, you know, we do fall for tricks over and over again uh, that have been used, you know, since, you know, since circuses started luring people in with promises of stuff that wasn't going to really happen. Um, but I think that what we can look forward to, and, and I'd be curious to know what you think about this too, is that um, as we become more familiar with the tools of social media, that we're gonna become more savvy social media users. And so we won't have the same problem that we're having now where people are just like, my friend said it on Facebook, it must be true. Which we, we think that because we've been socialized to trust our friends. Like that's not a bad thing that we trust our friends and that we wanna communicate with our friends and get information from them. But we just, a lot of people aren't used to the idea that some of these people that you think are your friends are actually robots being programmed by some weird distant foreign power or, some cor or a corporation that wants to sell you something. It's just, it's something that we rarely encounter in our social lives in meat space. And so I think the next generation of social media consumers will not be as gullible. And they'll get something from a friend and they'll be like, is that really a person? Let me check their profile. Yeah, that looks like a bot. Yeah, I mean, there's tells. You can tell bots. Like, if you're on Twitter and you're followed by a lot of bots like me, um, I mean, I also follow a lot of bots. Like, there's certain things that bots do that are different from what humans do, so. Uh, there's, I think there's a big social collision around critical thinking. Um, I encountered it when, when my daughter was in middle school, and that was the same time that search engines started being used. And so I had to sit with her and, and tell her, you know, if you're going to, do a paper and go to the library and get a book out of the library. There was an author and an editor and a publisher and a librarian and teacher who recommended the book, all of whom were gatekeepers who assured the authority of that text. And now you can ask any question and get a million answers and it's up to you to determine which of those are correct or not. So that, that got me thinking about critical thinking. You know, critical thinking was something that was attempted in the 50s and 60s around media, around television, and it was quickly identified as a communist plot. <laughs> Which it kind of was, let's admit it. <laughs> and, and the problem is that if, if, you, if you're, your offspring, if the next generation, if your students are to succeed, and if the commons is to become better, they have to become better at thinking critically and questioning authority. And many, if not most parents, and many, if not most teachers, are not really equipped to have their 
offspring and their students questioning their authority. I just, I don't see that really seeping into the education system and I, I don't really see it spreading online. And what I fear is that, that there's an arms race between our ability to discern bots and, and fake information and the purveyors of that. And we've got a lot of things to do and they've got one thing to do. And they've got a lot more resources, they being the people who have a lot of power and a lot of money and can, can use the tools of attention to maintain their position. You know, when Barlow wrote that, um, states were pretty much clueless. That is not the case and has not been the case for a while. And, and, and corporations and entrepreneurs are not clueless. They know that using the tools available to them, they can manipulate our attention and gain political power and make money. And on our side, we've got learning, learning how to tell the difference. I mean, yeah. the, the other, because uh, we've got to kind of wrap anyway. I mean, the, the other uh, way of also acknowledging the, the space that we're in in answer to this question is, I mean, partly uh, critical thinking and breaking blind faith, it, it comes through art. You know, the entertainment literally means to hold within. You know, to hold, uh, commercial entertainment provides answers. If we don't know how the movie ended, if we don't know what it was about, then I didn't get my money's worth off this thing. But real art, I mean, what gray area is here, even by its name, gray area, wait a minute, is it white or black? Sorry. It's gray. It's going to raise more questions than it answers. I mean, so I, I, I want to, uh, most of all, thank a, a gray area organization for, for, for hosting us, but, but even more than that, for existing in the first place, um, raising questions, uh, because questions are the, are the path to awe. Questions are the, the stuff of life, and questions are the things that bind us weird, squishy humans uh, to one another. So thank you, thank you, Anna Lee, thank you, Howard, for joining Team Human. It's been it's been a pleasure. You've been on Team Human, Human Intervention in the Machine, coming to you alive from the Gray Area Foundation's historic Grand Theater in the rising community of humans on a mission. You can support Team Human, gain access to our Slack channel and free admission to live events like this one by subscribing through our page at patreon.com slash teamhuman or the link at teamhuman.fm. Thanks again to Josette Melchor, Seabrook Guggins, everyone at Gray Area for making this possible, our producer and engineer, Stephen Bartolome, to our team players, Annalie Newitz and Howard Reingold, and all of you for showing up live and in the flesh. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Namaste, y'all. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.